Invest in yourself today with our Insider Pro product, which gives you the career path to reach the next step in your cybersecurity journey. Join today on cyber.it using the discount code podcast. Today's guest, Karen Gibson, retired U.S. Army intelligence officer, knows that to be a digital warrior means a commitment to continual lifetime training. Throughout her 33 years of military service, she learned that building trust in a culture centered around offensive and defensive measures is critical to bridging the gap between military ops and civilian cyber defenses in an increasingly digital environment. Hi, this is Leif Jackson here at Cyberary. Just so excited to have Karen Gibson here today. Uh, just really excited to have you here, Karen. Thanks, Leif. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Thanks for coming. Hey, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I just retired from the Army. I was in the Army for 33 years, which was 29, longer than I planned. <laughs> um, and it's really kind of, you know, my venturing into the cyber community was really kind of by accident. You know, just like my Army career was almost really an accident. You know, I joined the Army to pay for college and and fell in love with it. And, and I served as an intelligence officer, an army intelligence officer. And, and so, you know, in the course of that, did a number of assignments off and on in the NSA cryptologic community, you know, and, and NSA signals intelligence. It's really about um, intercepting and exploiting other people's communications. And I think if we went way back to like the Civil War, that would be, you know, using binoculars to watch some guy on a hilltop with semaphores and flags and figuring out what he was telling his troops and then communicating that to your own boss. And, you know, because I joined the army so long ago, I actually, when I was a young officer in Hawaii, I had a hundred folks that worked for me that were Morse code intercept operators, because those were the kinds of communications we were trying to intercept. Uh, Cause people actually still used it back then. And, um, and, and eventually, you know, as we transitioned away from just intercepting radio signals, and telephone, obviously it became digital and cyber. And then not just, you know, how are we going to intercept and exploit that? But over time, how can we, you know, manipulate that, attack that, block that, do things to our adversaries in cyberspace? And, and that was really from that military operations perspective, how I kind of ended up in the cyber community. It was very interesting and not intentional. That's amazing. So uh, tell me a little bit about that kind of movement from the kind of the 20th century to the 21st century, yeah. all the digital native stuff that you're talking about. Sure. So, you know, um, I think it, it really, and I, I, perhaps it'll recur in a theme in our discussion is that in many ways, we're still applying these kind of 20th century industrial processes to the way we operate in which is what is now, you know, this very 21st century digital environment. And so little things like, you know, when I was a young officer and you would be intercepting or exploiting Soviet radio communications, you knew that whoever you stumbled across, you know, in the frequency spectrum, that it was a military operator, probably from another country. Um, today, you know, our adversaries are using exactly the same technology as my mother and my kids and every business in America. And so it really started to introduce, you know, I think some obvious privacy concerns there. But also because there's so much money to be made, it's so lucrative now from a commercial prospect of, you know, providing digital services and digital protection that um, in the 20th century, only the government 
was, well, still only the government has nuclear submarines, or ballistic missiles, or, you know, attack helicopters. But now we're talking about a technology that's obviously pervasive and ubiquitous. And, and often these Silicon Valley companies uh, are ahead in many cases of certain government kinds of programming and acquisition. And we really need to partner more closely with Silicon Valley, I think, in trying to, and the rest of the commercial world, in trying to develop processes and solutions. I'll just give you two, two quick examples. Um, you know, one is acquisition. We are bounded by a lot of laws like the federal acquisition regulations. And, and when I was a new general and they came and taught us about how that process works, and they said, from the time your requirement is, is uh, validated, until we start to bend metal, uh, which is a clue right there, bend metal, uh, it's going to be seven years. And that's the process they work for a new attack helicopter, a joint strike fighter, you know, we're going to have a new kind of naval destroyer. Um, it's a very complicated and long process. And initially, they were trying to apply those same kind of processes to developing digital tools. And if it was an offensive tool, uh, they'd say, well, you know, that's something we're going to use to attack an enemy. It's a weapon. So we're going to apply the same weapon system acquisition programs to a digital tool, and that just doesn't work. A second example I'll use is, is training. Um, and, uh, you know, my background is, is Army. I, I do, I am proud of the fact that the Army is shifting and becoming more agile. But, um, you know, we still have very 20th century training models. And, you know, my husband, who's even older than I am, when he was a light infantryman, which was, you know, you jump out of an airplane or you walk everywhere you go, the most significant equipment upgrade he ever experienced was a new kind of parachute or the transition from the M16A1 to the M16A2 rifle. And so for a guy whose equipment doesn't really change, whose technology is never really significantly modified. You know, you can go to the officer's basic course when you first join the army. Four years later, you go to the captain's course. When you're a major at the 10-year mark, you'll go to Fort Leavenworth. And if you're really good, you'll go to the war college as a colonel. And that suffices. But to be a digital warrior is, as you know, you know, a commitment to continual lifetime training. And a lot of our models uh, that are built around folks that drive tanks or drive ships or, you know, fly fighters, lack that kind of agility and flexibility. Um, and so I think we really need to change many of the processes that um, we rely on for fielding capabilities in the military cyberspace. We're making progress, but there's still some way to go. Wow. That's, that is fascinating. Uh if I'm like a company out there, like a Silicon Valley company that's working with the government, mm -hmm. for example, how would you how would you recommend this kind of partnership to happen? Like, well, we've got some. Uh, we've built organizations like DIU. Uh, it started as DIUX, which is the Defense Innovation Unit, out in Silicon Valley to identify those kinds of companies that are working on promising technologies, and it's now beyond just cyber. We also look closely at space and other things. So. The military started putting folks out in literally in Silicon Valley to work that kind of partnership more closely, identify those promising technologies and get those integrated. Um, there are some other things. Uh, the Army has stood up uh, an Army Futures Command, um, which is oriented at identifying the kinds of technologies that we'll need. 
with the express purpose of bringing those on board and integrating those more rapidly uh, than we are right now. And they have some close partnerships. They're out in Texas, in, uh, in, in Austin, uh, to bring those kinds of things on board more quickly because that's a big uh, technology hub. And I think in some of the places where we have key cyber elements like Fort Meade, and uh, up in Central Maryland and uh, Augusta, Georgia, Fort Gordon, um, and then also San Antonio, Texas. The Air Force uh, has a big hub there. We are building partnerships with the local educational community, um, with local businesses to kind of create these cyber hubs that will help us um, meet the needs of our military cyber requirements. And it also, in many cases, provides some very exciting uh, career opportunities, I think, uh, in places that weren't previously so tech-focused, um, like perhaps uh, Augusta, Georgia. And then we partner closely with local universities, usually, like uh, Georgia Tech in Atlanta. Um, University of Maryland Baltimore College has a great uh, partnership program with the National Security Agency and some others uh, to kind of build those partnerships between academia industry and um, and the Department of Defense uh, or for our national security needs. So back to your original question, you know, what would you do if you were if you were a, a small business uh, that was working on these kind of things? There are typically some associations or organizations in each of those locations that are heavily invested uh, in developing those kind of partnerships. Um, there are professional associations uh, that are very engaged in trying to build productive partnerships between the private sector and the military. And I think at the end of the day, it feels like there just aren't enough um, cyber qualified STEM type uh, folks who are pursuing careers like that in America. So you really try to encourage those kinds of education, career and training opportunities to meet both uh, personal and defense needs. Uh, that makes sense, Karen. I mean, that's the skills gap is real, right? I mean, yeah. 25% of, of jobs are just constantly open at all times, and that keeps growing uh, in, the, in the cyber field. So it's certainly uh, an area for career development as well as, a, as just a, a strong employment area overall. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think one of the things that we touched on a bit earlier was not just the kind of the training side and the partnership side, but you even mentioned that on the vulnerabilities and attack side that you're seeing more um, from uh, both the international side, but like more on the domestic side and how these partnerships can actually help with those, with those uh, vulnerabilities. Can you talk a little bit about the structure there and kind of what you're seeing? Yeah. So, you know, as a military professional, I spent um, my career very focused on foreign adversaries and conducting operations overseas. Um, you know, I was looking at, and most of my time was spent focused on or deployed to the Middle East. So, you know, uh, trying to defeat ISIS. Uh, fortunately, we did. Um, working on the ISIS campaign, looking at Iranian missiles, you know, Pakistani nuclear doctrine. And, uh, and when I came back to the United States and I moved to the Washington, D.C. area in 2018, I was assigned to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. It was very eye-opening for me. It was a real epiphany um, because I'd been so focused for a long time on those foreign threats that occur in foreign places. And I'd been looking at um, adversaries overseas. 
it was eye-opening to me to understand the wealth of domestic threats that we face, particularly in cyberspace. Um, I think a couple of things, you know, one, um, those who wish to do us harm as a nation um, have ample opportunities to do so in cyber, whether that's to erode our decisive advantages, actual property theft, economic espionage, degrade our economic might, weaken our faith in the American system of government, as we see with some of the election meddling, particularly by Russia, um, that the oceans that protected us from other kinds of threats are obviously no barrier at all uh, to adversaries who want to impact us from cyberspace. And, and in another area, I think, when we think about major operations, major contingencies, major war, you know, I, I would hope we would never go to war with, with uh, China. But in a major war, we're naive if we think that the homeland is going to go unscathed in that kind of conflict. It, we're, we've always thought of war as something that happens over there, but that's no longer the case. Um, we are no longer protected from attacks uh, from other places. And anyone who works in cybersecurity knows that well, but I don't think we always think about the vulnerabilities of critical infrastructure. I would hope that the pandemic and kind of what we're going through now, seeing how, you know, just a germ. Uh, that did, in fact, originate, you know, on another continent, what that does to our economy, uh, to our national security, to our society, our very way of life. Just imagine a major cyber attack against, you know, our electrical distribution system, against ATMs, against the New York Stock Exchange or, you know, the banking, in the banking industry or, you know, our, our ability to communicate with one another. Can you imagine if we didn't have Zoom in this pandemic? And so I think that it was, it was very eye-opening to me to consider these domestic vulnerabilities and the fact that these are all here in the United States to be focused now internally, not just externally. And I think a real challenge here is that most of that critical infrastructure, 90% of it, I think, is in the hands of the private sector. So it's, it's not something that the government can protect in quite the same way as we do, say, for instance, uh, our airspace or, you know, the naval approaches to the United States. And so it really calls for a much stronger partnership and awareness um, with the private sector to keep that critical infrastructure safe. Uh, that makes sense. I mean, you talk about the, the electric power grid, you talk about, obviously, during 9-11 when the financial markets collapsed, you know, mm -hmm. uh, um, the, um, there's a lot that even hasn't been done. I mean, poisoning the Mississippi River could be one, right? Like, Yeah, let's not give people ideas. Let's not be <laughs> planting. Don't be coming up with, you know, genius kind of stuff because, you know, I think uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of things that could be done. And, uh, yeah. and that really, you know, so, so one of my big soapboxes of the last year, it, it's kind of ironic for someone who's been focused on, you know, terrorists overseas. But I, I do believe we're now overinvested in the counterterror fight. Um, you know, we hmm. put in place, uh, we built the TSA, the defense, uh, DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, Office of the Director of National Intelligence, where I used to work, was created, all of that in the wake of 9-11, because we recognized that as a nation, we had done a poor job of connecting the dots and protecting ourselves against uh, foreign terrorists who sought to do us harm. And 
that threat, well, we can't discount it. And it's always tragic when there's a loss of life, you know, like there was in Pensacola back in December uh, with the, the Saudi pilot who shot four sailors. Um, that's no longer the most likely threat against the United States, nor is it the most dangerous. So if we think, you know, in, in my you know, parlance where I come from as a military intelligence officer, we often characterize adversary activities, at least at a tactical level, as most likely and most dangerous. And I know there are people who don't like that construct because they say, hey, our enemies can do more than two things. And if you just look at those, you know, you have a tendency to perhaps uh, ignore and not get ready to counter some of those middle, moderate kind of, of actions. But if we think about it for this morning on most likely and most dangerous, I say the most likely uh, enemy course of action is clearly cyber because it happens every single day, right? You know, uh, penetrating our networks, uh, stealing information, planting disinformation. So the most likely enemy course of action is not radical Sunni jihadists. It's something in cyber. And if we think about the most dangerous, I mean, as appalling as the 9-11 attacks were and that loss of life, you know, and the destruction of, you know, um, the Twin Towers in New York City, that kind of would pale compared to shutting down electricity in the United States, you know, cutting, cutting electricity to hospitals, old people on respirators, babies in incubators, you know. Uh, just look at what COVID has done. Um, and so imagine what could be done with a, with a very destructive attack against um, our cyber infrastructure or our critical infrastructure. So I believe that both the most likely and the most dangerous uh, attacks against the U.S. would occur in cyberspace. And I would advocate that we need to think about as a government, how do we take the, the lessons learned and the institutional processes that have allowed us to successfully prevent another major terrorist attack since 9-11, uh, how do we reorient that and take those same kinds of government sharing processes and put them in place for cyber, uh, not just terrorists. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, the, the power grid did go down in New York and, and Canada at one point. You saw mm -hmm. what, what a difference that made, right? Um, one of the, the pieces that we discussed earlier that, that I think would, our audience would find so fascinating is, is when you, you, you stood up a security operations center. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a lot of people doing that on our platform. Uh, and they, just tell me about that and lessons learned and those kinds of things. Yeah, so mine was a little different. It was, you know, we called it the Joint Force Headquarters for Cyber. And um, and what made it different was we were conducting military operations in cyberspace, both offensive and defensive. And so I think it's in part that offensive component that's quite different. Uh, and really, you know, taking, taking military operations, intelligence, operations, and fires, which is striking or attacking someone, and and standing up an op center uh, that would do all of that in cyberspace to support our, our military operations. Um, so, you know, from a defensive perspective, because I didn't, I didn't, I came to it as, as a military professional, you know, and working with military defenders and, and applying the same kind of operational doctrine and terminology. So, you know, on the ground, I'm um, in the army on the ground, you know, we look at terrain and we say, okay, you know, what, what do I need to defend? What's my critical infrastructure? What's the key terrain that I got to defend? You know, how, how is my enemy going to come at me? We call those the avenues of approach. You know, what are the most likely ways that he's going to come? What kind of obstacles can I put out uh, to block him? And oh, by the way, if he's going to be slowed in an obstacle, I want some kind of, you know, in the, in the real world or in, you know, the, 
the terrestrial world. I want fires. Uh, I need to observe him there. What kind of surveillance am I going to put up? You know, we conduct cyber surveillance or, or ISR um, to defend that key terrain and really kind of applying those same principles there. Um, and then integrating that with the op- with the um, with the offensive piece. Um, and it was kind of the first time we brought those two communities together. Uh, the offensive piece kind of grew largely out of military intelligence because back to that early cryptologic thing I talked about where we first we collect and exploit people's communications. Now we're finding ways to disrupt or, you know, um, thwart their communications. And then the defense side, which came out of our communications, our signal regiment, our, uh, our IT professionals and kind of merging those communities um, to build one a solid 24-7 ops center that could both attack and defend in cyberspace. And uh, it was tough. It was, uh, you know, a couple of things. One, I find that the technology is usually not the hard part. Uh, the technology just seems impossible until you've figured it out. The long pull in the tent, the hardest part is policy and culture and getting those to change. Policy, culture, and authorities. That was that was tough. Um, it, it's, again, it's not usually the technology that is the hardest part. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, sure. The changing the culture, the policies. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So I I think, you know, some of the toughest was on the offensive side, frankly, um, uh, because if you're going to attack someone else's infrastructure, perhaps it's something that NSA is getting a lot of value out of collecting. So you have to have, what's called an IGL discussion, Intel gain loss, you know, uh, is, is what I'm going to gain by destroying or preventing this kind of communication? Is it worth what I'm going to give up from an intelligence perspective? And we actually, again, go through the same thing in the real world terrain. You know, if I want to blow up a public switch telephone network that ISIS is using, you know, is it worth what NSA will give up for having collected against it? If you ever saw the movie, uh, The Imitation Game, uh, it was about Alan Turing and, you know, the Enigma machine that they developed mm. uh, to crack Nazi communications. Benedict Cumberbatch, Kyra Knight, like a couple of years ago. Anyway, um, you know, there's a part where they intercept and understand that the Nazis are going to attack a British convoy. And they decide not to tell the convoy because by doing that, they'll be giving away uh, to Germany that we've cracked their code. So those kind of intel gain loss discussions have always gone on. And we had did a lot of arm wrestling with NSA on that. My first year in standing up this, uh, this op center, I, I came to work for the first 12 months and said, my mission is to defeat ISIS in cyberspace. Um, the second year I came to work and I said, my job is to defeat the NSA bureaucracy. Because <laughs> I felt like they were standing in my way at, at every turn. It was, um, it was really something that we had to negotiate with them. We had to negotiate with other parts of the government too. So, you know, um, again, it's not the technology usually, it's usually the authorities, the policy and the culture. So say for instance, you know, I'm trying to disrupt ISIS propaganda efforts and uh, and we have laws that say you're allowed to attack things in this area of hostilities, Iraq and Syria. Well, what do you do if that server is in Iceland? Um, that's not in the area of hostility. So now you have to negotiate probably with the Department of State. And you have to talk about, well, are we going to inform the Icelandic government or are we just going to, you know, do you even have the authority to do that? I'll give you another example, and this is kind of skipping around, but on the authorities piece, you know, you can take a soldier and give him, you know, an M4 rifle 
and uh, put him on a gate somewhere in an overseas post. And, and he's authorized to use deadly force. He can make a decision uh, to take a human life. But in the early days of cyber, if you wanted to send a Formula 404, you know, when someone hit a website, that required the president's approval. That was like back in 2012. It was just seemed ridiculously disproportionate. So we had to work through a lot of those kinds of getting authorities changed um, so that we could conduct operations. And, you know, perhaps those don't really pertain to your folks that are running socks. Um, but we encountered, I think, more bureaucratic and policy obstacles than we actually encountered technical obstacles. And so I think really a lot of that, it all comes down to trust. Um, you know, there was, there was a lot of nervousness about how we conduct operations in cyber and, and do we trust each other? Uh, do we have trust within different parts of the government? And are our allies and partners going to trust us? And so in working through those kind of things with the CIA and NSA and Department of State and even, you know, the Department of Defense and others, um, I think a lot of it had to do with building trust uh, so that we could trust one another's um, intentions. Um, and so they'd know, you know, we weren't cowboys out there that were going to muck everything up for them. Um, it, a lot of it is understanding equities, you know, why is this other person concerned about my operations so that you can, as you're laying out what you want to do, you can kind of assuage their concerns. Uh, you certainly, it's a lot harder to do that if you don't understand why they object to what you're trying to do. And then I think really the third thing on building that trust is you got to work together regularly all the time. Um, you can't wait till there's a crisis to try to establish a trusting relationship. Um, you have to do it all the time. Um, so that there's, when it come, when you come to that crisis, that there is that level of trust and understanding that, that they can rely on what you're doing. I think one other example I would offer that, um, that pertains from, you know, translates from military operations into, you know, doing kind of uh, civilian defensive, cyber defense, is, is information sharing. And that was also kind of an epiphany to me to come to the national level and to work with domestic agencies and to find that they didn't always have the same incentives to share uh, that we necessarily had had in the military. So, you know, when I was, um, I was the director of intelligence for the Defeat ISIS campaign in Iraq and Syria, and we had a great information sharing network. And as soon as something popped up in one area, every other, you know, intel hub would be informed of it. And um, we were sharing our information very broadly. It was none of this knowledge is power. I got a secret. I'm going to hold this over you. Or, you know, this is going to make me look good if I'm the only one that knows it. You got to do away with that environment where everyone is sharing information and you are all benefiting. And, uh, and it was tremendously powerful. When, it, when I came back to the States and I started working some of this domestic stuff, particularly with certain industries, uh, again, this gets back to learning about another industry's equities. Uh, say, for instance, we were working with the aviation field on, you know, what are what are your vulnerabilities in cyberspace? I'd come from an environment where we all shared this stuff all the time. I didn't, I wasn't thinking about how commercial vulnerabilities can translate to advantage to your competitors or, you know, can dent your stock prices if, uh, if the public finds out that you have a major vulnerability. I wasn't aware that these are some of the kinds of things that can prevent or slow down information sharing. Another example would be law enforcement community. You know, I thought, hey, we're all going to share all this information. 
I didn't understand that within the law enforcement community, you know, report cards that are perhaps given based on uh, convictions and not wanting to share information. You know, you see it in the movies all the time, you know, ah, the feds are in town. This is my case or whatever. I, did, I didn't really understand how real that was uh, until I began to work with the law enforcement community on, on information sharing. And I know this is a long answer to your question, but the last one I'd, I'd mention is, you know, I think the ISACs, the Information Sharing Analysis Centers that have, have sprung up, um, uh, that are built around, I should say, not sprung up around different kinds of industries, aviation, water, maritime, restaurant, hotel, um, et cetera. The financial sector has an ISAC. Those are really powerful uh, when, when there is information sharing on commercial threats uh, on cyber threats to various commercial industries. And that kind of information sharing is absolutely what we got to do. Uh, I love it. I love how you walk through all the different incentives that people have and how it disincentivizes information sharing or incentivizes it, right? So how do you actually think through the the actual incentivization? Uh, that yeah. makes, it makes a lot of sense. I think you have to understand other people's equities. You have to understand why they why they're reluctant to share uh, before you can kind of get to a place where you are more willing to share. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, uh, just as a final thought for our audience, uh, we'd love to love to hear from you. And before I forget, thank you for your service to our country. Really appreciate it, um, at, and across the board. So, any final thoughts? I want to thank everybody who's involved in cybersecurity, you know, because like I said, I used to worry a lot about terrorists, uh, particularly now that I'm not in the military. I, I don't think about it nearly as much, even though they still make me take my shoes off every time I go to the airport. Um, we need that same kind of vigilance in the cyber room. And so I appreciate everybody who is involved in keeping networks secure, you know, whether that's uh, military networks or whether that's uh, the commercial sector, because frankly, um, these are, I think, some of the most critical vulnerabilities in America, and it's essential to our national security. And I don't think people always think about that. They think, you know, the military are the ones that are keeping America safe, certainly from other foreign military attacks. But when you consider the American economy as the foundation for our whole national security, I think that cybersecurity expertise is, and cybersecurity experts are really unsung heroes. So I'd like to thank Hey, this is Thor. Thanks for listening to the Cyberry Podcast and make sure to check back next Wednesday for our newest episode.